Are we really confident that the federal government can run healthcare, can run education, can run, you name it, domestic program? What gives us confidence that they that, that the same members of the U.S. government can run this massive government program that we call the national security state that encompasses not just uh, activities domestically, but around the world? Welcome again to an episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Van Scan. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today is December 11th, 2023. And I'm delighted to have on another person who has been fighting for liberty and just a liberty warrior and a happy warrior all together. But we have a lot to talk about, about wars and the cost of them, things of that nature. And it's none other than Dr. Chris Coyne. Chris, welcome to Let People Prosper show. Well, thank you, Vance. It's wonderful to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, well, I'm excited about it. I've been following your work for a long time. And then you have this this book, it's not necessarily new, it's pretty new, but it's got a lot of great stuff in there. It's In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Path to Peace. So we're going to talk a lot about that among a number of other issues. Before we get going too far, let me give the audience your bio and then we'll jump right into it. Sure. So Dr. Chris Coyne is Professor of Economics at George Mason University and the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for the Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Center. He serves the co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics, the co-editor of The Independent Review, and the book review editor of Public Choice. He's a busy man. <laughs> His new book, which is In Search of Monsters Destroyed, The Folly of American Empire and the Past Peace, was published, published by the Independent Institute in 2022. I was first noticed of this book through the No Due Date group that Dr. Pete Bedke has, who's also over there at George Mason, and um, thought it was a great book, and so I'm delighted to have you on. And so before we get started too far into this conversation, why do you do what you do every day, Chris? Sure. Well, uh, you know, like like you mentioned with Pete Betke, you know, he he's the one that actually influenced me and inspired me. He taught me as a undergraduate student at Manhattan College in New York City and uh, introduced me to economics and Austrian economics and public choice economics and really changed the trajectory of my life. And hmm. so that's in the broadest sense why, why I do what I do. But more broadly, why, why I do this is because I think education and scholarship and public outreach and communication of the ideas of a free society and the foundations of a free society are crucial. You know, it's very easy, I think, to get kind of caught up in the kind of moment, uh, whatever the policy or topic of the day is, and to forget kind of broader principles that really underpin a free society. And so I feel grateful that I get to spend my life studying them and discussing them and uh, teaching them to students here at George Mason, but also to, to people around the country and world. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, which classes do you teach there? This semester, I teach uh, Principles of Microeconomics, okay. which is freshman and sophomore. After Walter Williams, my, my teacher, mm. passed away uh, three years ago, three and a half years ago, I, I took over his Micro One PhD level class. So I've been teaching that uh, for the last three years. That's a first year PhD students. And then I also teach classes in Austrian economics, uh, mm. defense and peace economics and public policy. Okay, great, great. Another great economist, Walter Williams. Yeah, rest in peace. Steve Horowitz as well. We talked about a little about him earlier. You know, there's a lot of great economists that are there at George Mason University. It's someone that, you know, if you're looking at a free marketplace to go and, and find um, good economics, sound economics, <laughs> along with some great uh, great personnel like, like Chris and others, definitely check out George Mason University. And of course, the Mercatus Center has a lot of great information as well. Along with the Independent Institute, Steve, where you, where you publish this book through, they do a lot of great work. I'd love to get into more of the details of the foundations with which you start 
I know you got Austrian economics on one side. I heard some public choice economics. Those are all good stuff. We talk a lot about that on the Life Heal Prosper show. I think that that's a lot of my foundation as well. But whenever you're getting into military wars, you know, you think about the non-aggression principle, which I think is really important as a, as a classical liberal. But where do you start with your philosophy and everything else that's got you the point that you're at today? Sure. That's a great question. You know, these issues of, of foreign intervention, defense, military, they're, they're quite contested even among mm -hmm. classical liberals in the present day, but also in history. If you look back throughout history, going back to Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, very important thinkers, they were all wrestling with these very difficult challenges. And of course, James Madison pointed out war is is one of the great threats to a free society, both in terms of the fiscal aspect, but also the, the pressure it places on constitutional constraints, uh, on the norms of freedom and so on. But in any case, where do I come from uh, on these issues? Well, well, certainly I have have my own kind of normative commitments uh, and, and ethical uh, commitments to these issues. But as an economist, I try to put those aside and come at it purely from the perspective of, of positive social science. And, and perhaps the best way to illustrate that is through kind of the story how I got onto these issues, which was my first semester in graduate school was 2001. And so three weeks after I arrived at George Mason University was the September 11th, 2001 attacks. And importantly, I had just come from New York City and I mm. worked down on the Wall Street. I grew up outside New York City, went to school there and I worked on Wall Street. And where I lived is Hoboken, New Jersey. And I would take the path train from Hoboken, New Jersey into the, the basement of the World Trade Center and wow. then walk over to Wall Street to go to work every day. And so I just come from there, moved to Northern Virginia, start here, 9-11 attacks happen. And of course, that had a huge impact on everyone throughout the country. It was it was uh, uh, quite emotional and and really uh, uh, had an impact on all of us. But then very quickly, the United States government starts this open-ended war on terror, invades Iraq and Afghanistan. And it occurred to me very quickly that no one was asking very basic questions, such as, can you actually rebuild or build a free society? Can hmm. you export freedom? and liberal freedom, liberal institutions through military occupation. Uh, what is required both in terms of the knowledge aspects, but mm. also the incentives, both the incentives in the United States, the, descent, the incentives on uh, uh, facing those being intervened upon, regional actors, and so on. And so that actually turned into my dissertation, mm. The Political Economy of Nation Building. And so I approached this through the lens of Austrian economics and public choice. Of course, one of the big emphasis uh, points of emphasis in Austrian economics is can you centrally plan an economy? Mm. Well, this is not so much centrally planning an economy, but it is trying, it being nation building, mm. is trying to centrally plan all the institutions that govern a society. Yeah. And can you do that? So, so, so that's the question I asked from that perspective. And then the political incentive aspect comes from public choice. Mm. And just like we would ask ourselves, well, are we really confident that the federal government can run healthcare, can run education, can run, you name it, domestic program. What gives us confidence that they that, that the same members of the U.S. government can run this massive government program that we call the national security state that encompasses not just uh, activities domestically, but around the world? And that's my entry point into, into critically analyzing these things. Mm. And I think that is value added both uh, to those who are interested in, in, in liberalism but also just more broadly, it, it, it's a way of engaging these activities I mean, and actions and, and trying to critically analyze them while removing the normative focus, not because the normative focus is unimportant. There's mm -hmm. always an ethical component to all these issues that we should discuss, 
But I think economics and the economic way of thinking can really help us sharpen some of the issues and discuss the constraints and issues, no matter where someone falls down on the ideological spectrum. Yeah, yeah, great points there, Chris. I, I agree with you. It's interesting. So in tw- in in two thousand one, you were starting grad school, right? That's Mason? correct. Yep, sept- <clears throat> September of, of two thousand one. Yeah. So in September of two thousand one, I, I was starting undergrad I, at a junior college, San Jacinto Junior College in Houston, and so. I had this, I had a similar experience. This was this was uh, in my freshman year, and so I was in economics, uh, microeconomics course there. And I remember after all that happened. First of all, I remember 9/11 and, and and going to school, and you know they they basically were watching it throughout the class. And I was in Houston, so there was a big concern about the ship channel ports and everything else that were going. And so we were all kind of freaking out there. But I remember from the economic perspective. After that, there was a lot of talk about how this was going to stimulate the economy <laughs> and how kind of the Keynesian sort of view, because this is the other side of it from a positive Keynesian view, is that, you know, wars help grow an economy. And, and there was already a slowdown, right? We were already in a recession at that point in 2001. And so there was a lot of talk about that, even in the class that I was in. And I was like, that is, doesn't make sense. Well, how would how would destroying things go through and, and create more growth in an economy along with all the other things that were going on? And I should mention, you know, initially, I, I guess I was in favor of us going to Afghanistan, given that given what was happening at the time, even some of the things with Saddam Hussein, my, my views on that have changed over time. But given a lot of things at that time, I, I mean, and, and, a, and a young person looking into all this, I was like, you know, this, this stuff makes sense. But I like that you come at it from a more positive economics angle and, and looking at this, were, were there some things at that time that made you kind of scratching your head like, okay, some of this sounds good, some of it doesn't, or, or were you strictly like against us going into either one of those um, early on? As a, as a citizen, yeah. so, so as, a, as a non-economist individual, my, my default position at that time in my thinking was one of skepticism towards proactive foreign affairs. Yeah. Um, and so the, I, I certainly had skepticism towards it. But as as a economist, I was trying my, to my best of my ability to analyze these issues purely. OK, let's actually parse through this. Think about what we can and can't do, because, you know, the, these issues are, are quite complex. But my position is never, you know, the government can never do anything or, yeah. or, or achieve its ends. If you if a government does anything domestically or internationally, it can accomplish some good. I mean, Again, think about to go back to an earlier example, you know, education. I live in Northern Virginia, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the country. Uh, There's a lot of money here. Mm -hmm. The public education system is quite good. So if you looked at this, just this, you'd say, boy, the government's wonderful at providing education. Of course, you drive 45 minutes into D.C. or Baltimore. It's the polar opposite. Mm. And so what you end up doing is kind of looking at these pattern predictions. Rather than looking at at, at particular things, you look at how government acts as a whole. Mm. And you have to be able... To, to be comfortable making kind of not specific point predictions, but broader pattern predictions about what you expect to happen. And that's mm. one of the insights from Austrian economics. Yeah. This is one of Hayek's arguments about the macro economy, that you can't control it. You can't pin it down. You can't make point predictions. It's just too complicated. It's too complex for human reason to grasp that. Yeah. And so that doesn't mean we can't say anything about it, but we're limited in doing so. And, and through time, through my research on these topics, I, I've become even more skeptical of foreign intervention. And yeah. I, I think even if one just looks at the last, you know, since 2001, there's very good reason for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I've kind of, and, and this is where I conclude in search of monsters, you know, one, one of the things in public policy and regu- in, in technology, especially in environmental issues, what's called the precautionary principle. So this idea that 
when there's something that could have irreparable harm, the burden of proof needs to be extremely high for the adoption of a technology or some policy. And, mm. and usually this is used by people in government against private actors. So against the innovation of driverless cars or mm -hmm. AI or whatever. I try to flip that over and I say, well, I think we should apply that same standard to government mm. when it comes to foreign interventions. The, that is, the, 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 we should never just say blanket no, because yeah. you could imagine at least conceptually instances where you'd want that option, but the burden of proof needs to be extremely high. And again, just going back to 9-11 uh, and the activities after that, I think justifies that. But if you go further back in history and you look yeah. at Vietnam, uh, you look at lots of other uh, foreign interventions throughout U.S. history, I think the evidence for that is even stronger. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I wonder, taking it from like a, a neocon perspective, is that it seems like their assumption is that this could make things better off. Right. Like if we didn't go after them, they're going to come back after us. So from their precautionary principle, they're maybe doing good <laughs> by by going there. But but where might they be getting going off the track a little bit? Yeah, well, I think one one area they're going off the track is simply the idea of unintended consequences. Yeah. You know, part of the 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 challenge, but also I th uh, of unintended consequences is they're long and variable. Mm -hmm. So 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 they don't emerge until years after. And 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 just think about Afghanistan for a moment. 9-11 and the subsequent U.S. invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, uh, of course, has a long history. But just go back to the Soviet-Afghan War in mm. the late 70s. And of course, the United States government funneled uh, uh, weapons and uh, resources through Pakistan to what then were known as the Freedom Fighters. And they were able, the Freedom Fighters were able to successfully push back the Soviet uh, uh, invaders. But of course, then that left a power vacuum, which led to the rise of Al Qaeda, uh, the Taliban, then subsequent, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's too simple, the history I'm given. There's lots of other nuances, of course, but it was really the foundation of all the problems that led up to 9-11. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a tendency to always start with the here and now. So like history started on 9-11. And one of the challenges of this is there's nationalism, Yeah. Uh, me meaning that when you try to even raise the, the possibility of prior U.S. actions abroad, U.S. government actions, I should say, contributing to the threats to America now. It's mm. somehow unpatriotic or un-American mm. or, you know, you don't like the military, whatever the kind of uh, smear people throw at mm. you. But but a complete analysis, and I would argue being a good patriot, being patriotic requires you to wrestle with those hard issues. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, go back to people like James Madison. He, he wrestled with these issues mm -hmm. unsatisfactorily, but he wrestled with them like, how how do you empower government and can you empower government to do good, but also limit it because you recognize it can do real harm when you give it power? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and and again, Madison recognized that that war uh, was the, the great enemy to public liberty, as he put it. Mm -hmm. I think rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense to me. There's a lot going on right now. And, 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 and I, I want you to expand on some of the stuff in the book, which you are as we're going through this conversation. But just to hit in a key, you know, hot topic right now that's that's been unfortunate is kind of this Israel, Israel and Hamas situation in Palestine and things that are going on over right over there right now in the Middle East. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on on that and, and kind of the situation, I guess, more broadly or however you'd like to talk about it, because it, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on, look, we've got to help Israel. But there's a lot of innocent people who, speaking of unintended consequences, there's a lot of that going on. And I, and I wonder, too, kind of the knowledge problem of all the things that are happening there. How do we get all this right after the damages to Afghanistan, uh, the, 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 to, to Iraq as well, this nation building that just didn't seem to work <laughs> and didn't work well over that period of time? 
how much of this is even contributing to what's going on there now. Uh, but I wonder what your thoughts are, Chris. Yeah. So again, that's a, a you know these topics that the the war, the Russia uh, Ukraine war that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these are 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 very nuanced and, and deep topics. So I can't provide kind of a, sure. a one sentence in summary of, of of the causes or consequences or or how to fix it. And that's one of the things I'm going to come back to that we can't fix yes. it. Okay. You know, I, I'll say this: each of these instances, meaning the two instances we're talking about, the the, the Ukraine Russia yep. uh, conflict and and, and Israel uh, Palestine or Israel uh, Hamas, they are long-standing conflicts with a very long history that you cannot trace back to early October, for instance, in the mm-hmm. case of Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing, and and it's almost this goes back to my point about kind of the smears. It's it's kind of regretful that I even need to point this out, but let me point it out because you have to say it nowadays, that I think one can critically analyze these things and recognize horrible, repulsive behavior on the part of both sides, meaning that pointing out that there's a long chain of consequence that led to this is not a defense of Hamas. It's not Mm -hmm. a defense of the brutal attacks on Israel in in October. It's not a a justification of Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. But at the same time, we have to recognize that people don't just do things randomly. Mm. One, one assumption is that there's crazy people in the world. And some people use like, Putin's crazy. He just he, he, he's just nuts and he likes to invade places. And that's why he, he invades his ego. And that's possible. We can't mm. rule that out. But an alternative way of thinking about it is that pe- politicians undertake policies and, and war making is a policy just like yeah. any other. It, it's a certain form of a policy, but it's a policy for certain reasons. And, and and in order to understand and diagnose the root cause of that conflict, which is important in itself, but also important for for ending the conflict and preventing it in the future, we need to understand why that's the case. Yes. So I have no problem recognizing, and 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 I think there's good reason to believe that Putin is a terrible person that utilizes the military to harm innocent people. That's a, a defining feature of government, I think, by the way, mm-hmm. not just Putin, but Putin's one manifestation of it. And that Putin felt threatened by NATO expansion, by certain activities by the West. And there were opportunities to appease that, that people didn't want to appease. Mm. And I, I think where that conflict, and again, this is just me speculating, I, I don't yeah. know. I think where that conflict is going to end up, I'm talking about the conflict in Ukraine, is with a peace agreement with the, with with the US and European governments pushing the Ukrainian government to make a peace agreement with some security guarantees for Russia mm-hmm. where they give up part of the land and that that Russia has now occupies and uh, uh it's also going to come to fruition through time that the Biden administration knew that Ukraine could not win the war even though they said they could they yeah. claimed multiple times they were winning and that it's just like with Afghanistan uh with the Afghanistan papers it's going to come to light that leaders in the United States knew this was impossible. It was yeah. not going to happen given the current setup, meaning mm-hmm. given that the mm-hmm. U.S. government was unwilling to put boots on the ground, was w- unwilling to directly engage Russia. That's something we have to wrestle with ethically, because yeah. then the question becomes, how many lives are you willing to to, 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 to risk and to end in the name of continuing a, a conflict that could have mm-hmm. been ended? Mm-hmm. Now, Israel, Hamas, again, I understand the uh, uh, Israeli government's response. I, I get it. It's not, yeah. you know, I, I understand the position they're taking. But again, what you have is a response that is leading to the death of hundreds of thousands of innocent people. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's putting aside the past ones. Now, that doesn't yeah. excuse what Hamas did. Right. The question is, how, to my way of thinking, how can you get peace as quickly as possible? And that's a tough, that's a tough question. I don't have a simple answer, but here's yeah. my take. This is where I want to end and what I was saying at the beginning. I don't think any Westerner does. Mm-hmm. I think one of the insights of coming out of the Austrian tradition yeah. is that all these proposals, well, if we just had the two-state solution, if we just had this, it's too simple and it falls prey to Hayek's fatal conceit. Mm. Hayek's fatal conceit is is the arrogance that that someone or some group of people has a plan to shape the world according to their wishes. Yeah. And I just don't think that's the case. I don't think you can just design a solution. I think it needs to be organic. Yep. And, I, and, and I realize people find that unsatisfactory because they want to fix it. But, you know, I, I do think when ex- especially external governments become involved in these situations, at best, it becomes a Band-Aid. You're going to get very illiberal outcomes. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't think it's going to solve the, the root cause of the problem. Yeah. Uh, wise words there, Chris. I'm taking to heart as well as I'm learning about this whole process and the next steps and everything else. And something that you mentioned, though, that reminded me a lot of the Austrian school <clears throat> is you said something about we don't need to just know what's happening now in the future, but we need to know what happened in the past. And that's one of the things I think about the Austrian school that's always been superior to me than the Chicago school or others is it really looks at how do we get here, right? Whether it's too low of interest rates for too long, speaking from an economic perspective, um, that led to the inflation and the distortions in the economy. People just want to look at the recession You've got to know what happens before the recession that got you to that point. And it's similar here, I guess, whenever you're thinking about military. And you talk about this in, a lot in your book, too, in, in Search of Monsters, where you've got to know the history before you get there. And so you see a lot of these people doing Monday quarterbacking or whatever it is. Uh, they're trying to say what happens the day after the football game and say, hey, this is what should have happened. But they're only looking at the game. They're not looking at the war that's been going on for a long period of time. I, I wonder what can get us back on that path, because... Too many people are only looking at what's, ha- what's happening right now. They don't want to look at the, the situation of how we've got it. What do you recommend of how we start to do that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, we only can control our own actions. So yep. as individual yep. analysts, as citizens, I think we can take that to heart. Yep. I also think this is going back to a, a topic we were discussing earlier. This is part of my skepticism. This is part mm. of the precautionary principle. I, applying it to future foreign interventions. I, I highly recommend people that are viewing or listening to this who are yeah. interested in this to pick up the book by uh, Whitlock is the author's last name, hmm. the, the Afghanistan Papers, which, okay. which are which are declassified government papers about the U.S. experience in Afghanistan. And just read it. And one of and, and they're free on the Washington Post website if you don't want to get the book, but the book brings them all together. But one of the things that comes out of that is that people in the U.S. government, in the national security state, had no clue about the history of Afghanistan. You have members of the security state saying that. They're Mm. saying like, we didn't do our homework, we didn't know the history, meaning that the idea that you could impose a national government, a top-down national government in in the US uh, uh, Western type style government on a country that's never had that type of system that doesn't have the underlying beliefs and traditions. Yeah. Uh, You know, in hindsight, looking back, we're like, duh, that's obvious. But at the time when you read this book, it's evident that that they really thought they could, that it was yeah. that simple, that, that that it was the equivalent of me going down to Washington, D.C., buying like a replica of the U.S. Constitution at the museum and like bring it over and saying, just follow these rules and, and, and you, too, can have freedom. Yeah. And and, you know, one of the amazing things about the U.S. Constitution, to the extent it works, 
is how short it is. It's a very mm. thin document. Mm -hmm. and, and me, my, my point being that it relies heavily on a set of underlying norms, traditions, values, and beliefs in order for that project to, to work and get off the ground. Mm. And that's a really important takeaway because that, that doesn't just apply to us here, but also to other people as well. When, when there's a disconnect between the underlying norms, beliefs, traditions, and what you want to impose upon people, then it's going to fail. And yeah. then you're stuck in a position where you either leave and you failed or you have to use force to get people to align with your vision, which is inherently illiberal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I agree. When, when you're looking at these things, what about ter terrorism in general, right? Terrorist activities taking place. You know, none of us like terrorism. <laughs> it's, 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 it's unfortunate. It's, it's usually one-off events in many cases. It makes it difficult to see just a, an army, a standing army of how to go after them. Kind of like the Hamas situation, you know, maybe Israel's bombing places to go after Hamas, but it's killing innocent civilians, kind of the unintended consequences, which is terrible in, in the process. But it makes it very difficult with with terrorism. Do you have a, a strategy or anything like that to, to go after them? Or, or what would you say about that? Yeah, well, first of all, terrorism, uh, there's a couple of things I, I, I have okay. in terms of thinking about this. Number one, terrorism is not new. It is not okay. a 9-11 phenomena. True. Or post it is as old as, as, as mankind in terms of if you look at the history of terror, terrorism is a psychological state mm. of, of fear. That's what terrorism mm. is. There's certain acts that we... Quantif we, 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 we delineate as terrorism. That's one of the interesting things is, is there's no single definition of terrorism, which makes it hard to operationalize the policy yeah. or perhaps easy for those in the terrorist industrial complex who want, want to expand because they can count lots of things as terrorism. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what it is. So then what do you do about it? Well, again, we can analyze it using the tools of economics, terrorist activity, but also I think there's some lessons that come out of our discussion. One of them is that First of all, terror, by the way, statistically, terrorism is extremely rare. Yeah. Um, um, and so if you look at uh, there, there's a great political scientist. I, again, I highly recommend uh, your your listeners to to look this up. His name is James Mueller. Mm -hmm. And he was he's retired now. He was a political scientist at Ohio State. And he's affiliated with the Cato Institute. He's written a series of wonderful books that just looks at the statistics behind terrorism. Mm -hmm. and, and for American citizens, you, you, you have to uh, if you just look at the statistics, the likelihood of any of us getting caught up in a in a terrorist act domestically is lower than us getting struck by lightning, drowning in a bathtub, getting killed by a deer crossing the street while we're driving our car and mm -hmm. so on. And we have to remember that 9-11 is what in, in statistics we call an outlier. You, mm -hmm. and you're supposed to discard outliers because you can't let outliers drive the, the outcome of the statistical analysis. But even if you include it, it's quite low. And, and Mueller's point is that the amount of resources, the fear mongering that the U.S. government has invested in since 9-11 just doesn't map to the actual magnitude of the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's what we should. That's the first thing we should keep in mind. And of course, government has an incentive to uh, inflate threats because yep. that's how it expands its control over our lives. And so. That's something to keep in mind. And so here's what my, my position on this now after studying this for, for, for quite some time is that much of terrorism can be resolved through normal police work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and much of terrorism is, is criminal activity. Yeah. So, you, you know, when you get a shooting in a nightclub, for instance, like the, 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 the shooting in Florida several years ago at that nightclub. And it was, you know, you'll see this goes back to my point about definitions. Clearly, it's a crime. You're yeah. not allowed to shoot innocent people. We have uh, laws against that. But is that a terrorist act? Well, certainly it created fear. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then it comes down to whoever gets to define it can define it as a terrorist act or not. Uh, that becomes quite problematic. And so, the, you know, th- because, again, it, it's it's what you want it to mean. And so my own position is that many of these things can be addressed through normal police work. I mean, even if you look at 9-11, yeah. U.S. agencies, certain agencies had information on the terrorists. They just didn't share it. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, that's bureaucracy. You make a bureaucracy <laughs> really big. And you're going to get lots of noise and mis- misinformation because things aren't being communicated because it's just enormous. Yeah. What's the response to 9-11? The Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. So let's make a bigger bureaucracy. And so you start thinking about this stuff and you're like, wait, wait a second. Something d- doesn't uh, make sense here. Mm-hmm. And economics points that out or helps you point that out because it, it helps you analyze how bureaucracies operate mm. and the, the frictions that are caused and the dysfunctions. Yeah. Um, where for most people, they're like, oh, yeah, more resources, a bigger uh, government bureau, that's better for protecting us. Um, and it's the same kind of thing with surveillance. You know, the, the, there's so much data collected now. And this isn't my point. Data yeah. analysts in government have pointed this out. They say we have so much inter- information that we're collecting, that government's collecting in the name of security, that it's the kind of needle in a haystack problem. Mm. You know, sorting through it to actually identify the value added pieces of information, assuming they're, they exist is near impossible to do. And so uh, it, more is not always better, I guess, yep. is the, the takeaway there. Yep, yep. That's a good point there. And um, it, it reminds me of some things, too, where, yeah, Friedman, who said, don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by its results. And I think many of these people are good, in t- you know, well-intended for some of these actions that they're taking, but the results just haven't been there, or at least not what we were, were intended to be the results. And, and, and I think there are some bad actors <laughs> that, that maybe want to lead into wars and stuff like that, but kind of putting those to the side, I, I think that there are some, some, some people out there who think this is the best way to go, but unfortunately aren't looking at the unintended consequences of what happens. I've had some talk about this on, on, the, sh- on the program, Jay Bhattacharya, for about the COVID situation and, and what happened there. There were good intentions, but then what were the results after that with Steve Hankey's work and others that are out there? And, and, and this is something on, on wars, on, on monsters to destroy. It just seems like the military complex, because there is this rent-seeking that goes on, kind of go to the Buchanan and, and, and public choice route, there's this rent-seeking that happens from politicians, but also from institutions that want the dollars to flow. And so who can we find to destroy next? And, and so I wonder, you know, from the perspective of a classical liberal um, and thinking about the size of our military today, I think that there's a lot of excess and a lot of bloat that's within our military that we have today where I would like to see some, maybe some audits, some, some restrictions, some, some cuts, you know, why do we need such a large uh, um, military complex to begin with? And I, I wonder if some private militias could end up resulting in some of this or, or, or kind of what your take is on that. Cause I liked your view on the police. You know, this is basically a policing, a local thing versus putting it more to the federal level. I, I kind of think too, you know, Chris, with, with having our Republic that we do, I do believe that rule of law is important. And so maybe there's a role for national defense in order to protect our security and our private property kind of going into the more capitalist system that I wish we had. I don't think it's as capitalist as what many say, but I wish it was more like that. But I, but I wonder kind of your perspective on national defense in America and, and where we should be headed. Yeah. So a couple of things, you know, first of all, certainly our, our, the national security state is enormous, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of dollar amounts and in terms of just size, size. Yeah. And, so scale and scope, both of those things are, are you know, there, there's a, a two Washington Post journalists after 9-11. So this would have been the early 2000s. They tried they tried to 
uh, do an investigative study of the size of the national security state. So they're trying to just get a sense of like real estate that was like mm. office space, who had security clearances. It's called Top Secret America for anyone okay. that's interested. It's on the Washington Post website, and there's a book by Dana Priest and William Arkin are, are the co-authors. They could not identify the magnitude and scale of this. And their mm -hmm. point is that this is just out of control, and it's just grown since then. And so that's a problem just in terms of security, because think about how many people have access to stuff in addition to the lack of communication that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, certainly this idea of uh, an iron triangle. And so one mm -hmm. of the fascinating things about the, the military sector is you get this confluence of left and right. And and so, you know, the, for a lot of other issues, there's kind of this divide between people on the ideological right and left uh, or, you know, businesses, even when there's cronyism or unions and there's conflict, there's some conflict mm -hmm. in, in the military sector. They all line up, yeah. uh, which is uh, it makes sense. As you were saying, you know, you get government bureaucracies that want more money. You get private firms and contractors that want more money. You want unions that want contracts and bennies for their members. So they get that through the, the defense sector. And so you get this alignment of all these interests where it just reinforces it. it, it, it. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, you know, the, the typical kind of classical liberal vision is limited government, police, courts, defense, that kind of thing. And let's go with that for a moment. The challenge is if you look in practice at what the U.S. national security sector does, you spend a little bit of time looking at it you will realize that much of what they do has actually nothing at all to do with the protection of ordinary Americans. Mm. Nothing at all. It has to do with uh, uh, protecting and, and benefiting certain people, mm. uh, but not the general. There's no national common defense. Uh, yeah. they are, they're benefiting certain businesses or certain interests in, in foreign countries or certain interests in Washington, D.C. And so what is to be done? Well, you know, my, my own view is, is first of all, we, we, we need a, a skepticism, wh yeah. which sounds very kind of mundane, but I think it's important. And again, go back to the founders. They all had a deep-seated skepticism towards the military and militarism. It was one of their great fears. Yeah. It really was one of their great fears. Now it's like the opposite. It is everyone accepts it. Mm. Anyone that, can, can, can you think of even a handful of representatives at the national level who push back on on national security issues? I, I mm. you'd be hard pressed to do that. You can get one off people here and sure. there, but they're usually viewed as like outliers, extremists. Yep. Uh, uh, they're called they're called un-American. Yeah. Uh, they never really get any traction. But you know, going back to your point about the audit, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon is supposed to be audited. There, there's mm -hmm. a federal law that says agencies have to pass an audit, just like any other private business would have to. It's that's which isn't a crazy thing. No. That's not like to say like oh. Should a, a federal agency be able to, to 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 balance its books and provide basic financial statements? Okay, there's one agency that number one has acted illegally, meaning in violation of federal law, from even attempting an audit. And then ha when they have passed uh, uh, tried the audit, they failed repeatedly, and that's the Pentagon. Mm. So the Pentagon only started being subject to that law, which I, I think passed in like the mid '90s or, or late '90s. That 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 law requiring audits went into uh, effect. For years, they, they didn't even submit to the audit. Hmm. And, and, and of course, what did members of Congress did? They kept increasing their budget. Right. Right. And what basic economics. If, yep. if, you are, <laughs> if you are being rewarded for not doing something, you're going to continue to do that, engage in that behavior. That's <laughs> yeah. Econ 101. Yep. Um, and then they fail the audit. And they basically say, like, yeah, we knew we were going to fail, but it's great that we actually tried it. You start studying these things and you just realize this is a mess.
And so we need skepticism among citizens and really start to start questioning things. And it's hard to do. I mean, think about it. The Biden administration gets us out of Afghanistan, which was a hot mess when they got out the way they got out. And it was always yeah. going to be that way. Yeah. It was always the, just given the nature of the occupation, there was no way for it not to be that way. So I actually give him credit for kind of doing that, given the political backlash he received. But then that provided a very small window to my way of thinking for us to critically kind of question, well, let's take stock of what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Like, what are we doing in the world? Mm -hmm. Then, of course, Russia invades Ukraine and everything goes by the wayside. Then you get, you know, current Israel situation. Yep. You get you get all the discussion again, the fear mongering about China and, and, yep. and Russia and the threats to, to U.S. national security. And it's like none of, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you never hear about it. Mm. You'd be hard, hard pressed to even hear about it now. And especially in Afghanistan, the United States government left behind a terrible situation. There's a humanitarian crisis there. But, you know, that's old news now, even though it's not that old time wise. And so that's yeah. the challenge for citizens. Yeah. You know, it's re it's a real, and we have our own issues. Of course, we have our families, and we have our, our our own careers and communities that we're concerned about, and domestic policy. So it's challenging, but that's where we need to start. In my ideal world, I, I personally would like to see a significantly smaller national security sector. Mm -hmm. I think that there are other means to provide security. I don't necessarily mean guns. Okay. I think going back to people like Bastiat, people like Cobden that trade and economic integration mm. is a form of security. Yeah. Um, and that 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 is counterintuitive nowadays, because mm -hmm. if you turn on the news, what you will hear is the opposite. You'll hear the Biden administration and, and, and the Trump administration prior to that saying we need to decouple. We need to decouple from China, from Russia, because because of national security. But what those thinkers, I'm talking about Bastiat, Cobden and others, what they yeah. emphasized is just the opposite. Adam yeah. Smith, same thing, that economic integration is one of the fundamental sources of peace. Mm -hmm. And from that standpoint, it's a source of security, even though it's not guns and missiles and tanks. And so one of the other things I think we can all start to think about is don't think about defense and security in terms of just guns and tanks and bombs, but think of it as any kind of activity we can take that lowers the likelihood of violent conflict and, and peaceful resolution to conflict, because conflict is a constant life all of us engage in conflict. What we want to avoid is violence. We want peaceful means to resolve in conflict. And so any move we can make to increase the likelihood of that, to my way of thinking, is preferable. That's diplomacy, yeah. economic ties, oftentimes appeasement. Um, again, there's always going to be outlier cases that we have to deal with, and those are hard cases, but that's the kind of thinking I would like to see adopted. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me, Chris. I just had a piece out that AIER talking about, is China... America's biggest threat and and really or is it ourselves and I I talk about how the national debt in my view is the national crisis because that is going to create so many other problems whether it's China or other places I even talk about some of the trade though too how tariffs that doesn't work you know China doesn't really care as much about their people even if it's it's hurting them while at the same time of course we're the ones that are paying for those tariffs and it's it's unfortunate that we're seeing both the, the Trump administration, which I was there at the time for, for a little while, and I was pushing back on a lot of that stuff from Peter Navarro and Lighthizer and others. There were some of us that were doing that. President Trump wanted that at the end of the day. But, you know, and President Biden has basically continued a lot of that, which I think is contributing to more of a war atmosphere across the globe. 
people aren't talking as much. There's not, that's your point about diplomacy and trade. There's a lot of concern about what the others are doing and a lot of pessimism about the future. So why wouldn't you bring up more wars and, and, and be going after other places more than you would? It creates a lot more instability or instability and uncertainty in, in the marketplace of, of the global situation. And I think what you're, what you're doing here is, is really good, Chris. And I wonder, as we're wrapping up the last couple of minutes, is there anything else that you'd like to point out that we haven't um, discussed yet? Uh, the the final thing I'll say, and, and I appreciate you bring up your article because I think you really get at a core point, which is that you cannot separate foreign policy. And we think about foreign policy as war, military. That's what we've been focusing on. But it's also economics, mm -hmm. but also domestic economic policy. So if you if you bloat the federal deficit through national defense, because remember, the war, the, the post 9-11 wars were, were largely debt financed. Yep. So there was no new war tax like during the world wars or during other wars where where there was there was debt issued during those wars, but there was also new taxes imposed. But that's not the only driver of the debt. Of course, it's it's out of control in Washington D.C. across the board. But but that makes the United States more vulnerable to foreign actors. And so uh, thinking about how all these things are entangled is is crucial. And that's why I think kind of the the classical liberal vision is one that's important, kind of tying this all together of why we do mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Economic freedom, economic liberalism are all tied up with foreign policy and peace, both domestically mm. and internationally. And so focusing on how those things relate and, and what that requires of us is discipline in the face of really strong pushback, because our position, the position that uh, about trade and peace, uh, many people kind of view it as naive. Oh, that's right. naive right. in a world where people are. Well, what's more naive? Is it that individual human beings can figure out ways to live together peacefully or that we need to centralize government power and have them plan everything. Because ultimately what we need to realize is when we elevate the political slash military instrument for the world, what you are doing is saying there's a small group of people sitting in Washington, D.C. that can pull levers and plan the entire world. That's yeah. the that's the world's policemen, the, the, the rules based order that America has to bring order to the world. Yeah. And so if you adopt that position, then you have to think about what the implications are for domestic policy and so on. And pretty quickly, you realize that that there's an inconsistency there yeah. um, that's important yep. to address. And so uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to yeah. speak with you about these issues. And I hope that others will continue to think about them because they're important, but they're also quite complex and, and difficult. Definitely. We, we, we've, um, you know, in a short period of time, I think we went through a lot of the key things here. There's a lot more we could discuss, but we'll have it back on sometime soon and talk about those again for the audience it's in search of monster to destroy the folly of american empire and the past to peace by dr chris coin chris well thank you again for being on life people prosper show and god bless you and your family thank you vance i appreciate the opportunity excellent well for the audience thank you all for joining us today go out and give us a five-star rating and leave comments and reviews and all that fun stuff as well and until next time let people prosper